people have been wondering all week, what are we going to do next? Well, as it turns out, Paul wrote another letter. It's one page over. In fact, he wrote 13 letters of the New Testament. So we're in 1 Thessalonians this morning. And the title of the message is A Lasting Imprint or A Lasting Impression. I played church league softball as a teenager. And I was playing one night. I was on first base. I'd already reached first base. So that was good news. That ain't going to work. Stay. I was on first base. A guy hits a grounder up the middle. The shortstop catches it, and he's throwing to first base. I'm running as hard as I can to second, but I'm nowhere near ready to slide. And he, he throws that ball with all of his force, hits me in the head, knocks me down. My brother was coaching the team. He came out, are you okay? I mean, I was stunned. I was seeing stars. He said, we got to get you to the hospital. I said, no, I don't want to go to the hospital. I'm fine. Now, keep in mind, he didn't realize I couldn't see anything. I had to look at stuff out the corner of my eyes. And so we sat in the dugout. I talked him out of taking me to the hospital, sat in the dugout. When the game's over, we're walking. He said, we're going to the hospital. We're going to the emergency room to get this checked. I said, no, I don't need to go to the emergency room. So he points. This was in Macon, Georgia. He points at this train, and he said, all right, what is that train over there? What's on the side of that train? I couldn't even tell there was a train, but I knew in Macon, Georgia, if you say southern, there's going to be a car that has southern all over the side of it because it's a railway company that's based in the south. And he said, Okay, but I guess I started acting a little more weird. So he took me to the hospital, and I spent the night, and they came in and woke me up every night shining a light. Have you ever had a concussion? They tell you to try to get some rest, but every hour on, on the hour, they come in and wake you up and shine a spotlight in your eye to see if your eye's dilating or not. Well, it will if you get a megavolt flashlight placed in your eye. And you say, why are you telling that story? Because for three or four days after that, I had stitch marks embedded in my head from the softball. So that left a lasting impression that lasted three or four days. Let me ask you this, spiritually speaking, who has made a lasting impact in your life? When you think back on your spiritual pilgrimage, for some of you it may be days, weeks, or months, for others of you it's many years, and there's been a legacy of imprints, impressions in your life. I can think one of several. One, Hank, our youth pastor growing up. I trusted Christ as my Lord and Savior at the age of 12. I was baptized in a little church in Macon, Georgia. But nobody told me what to do next. Hank came as our youth pastor and started discipling us and teaching us what to do next about quiet times and reading the Bible and prayer. He turned me over to a guy named Matt, who was my small group leader. And Matt made a big impact in my life. Another guy was a guy named Dave Busby. Anybody ever heard of Dave Busby? A few of you have. Dave Busby impacted an entire generation of ministers, especially youth pastors, just, just the idea of grace. So those are three that came to my mind. I hope somebody comes to your mind, and I hope you are that impression, you're leaving an impression on others. But as we think about Paul, what he writes to the Thessalonians, the Thessalonican Christians, he's talking about the impact they're already having and the impression that they're having in the world. Let me just read the first couple of verses. We're going to cover chapter 1 this morning. But just kind of walk us through this passage. Paul, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Silvanus, Silas. You ever heard of Paul and Silas? For some reason, every now and then they call him Silvanus. And Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you making mention of you in our prayers. Wouldn't you like to get that letter from the Apostle Paul? 
for the Apostle Paul, who's got a direct connection with God, to say, hey, I think about you a lot, and I'm praying for you. That's an awesome letter to get, and the church at Thessalonians was getting that. Just to give you a little detail on the church, different than Colossae. Colossae was a church that was in decline, or a city that was in decline. The church wasn't in decline. The church was eat up with false teachings and heresies that Paul is preaching and teaching against. First Thessalonians is one of the very first books written in the whole New Testament. And so Paul writes to a, a city of about 200,000 people, Greeks, Romans, and Jews, some who've come to faith in Christ. This church is just beginning, and so the church at Thessalonians is on a crossroads. Rome was famous for building roads in the first century, so it's on the crossroads. It's also a seaport, and so people are coming through there constantly. But it was very religious and very dark. When I say religious, I'm not just talking about Christianity. It had multiple religions, very religious. For, for the most part in the Bible, the word religion and religious isn't good. <laughs> so it was very religious but very dark, very pagan. How did Paul get there? If you want to flip over to Acts chapter 17, I'm going to capsulize. In chapter 16, Paul has a vision at night. He sees a man from Macedonia saying, hey, come over here and help us. And so Paul and Silas go there. Timothy joins them. And so they're at the church in Thessalonians. So look at verse 1 of chapter 17. Just going to read six verses, but a couple things I want to point out in these verses. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from Scripture. You want to know what you ought to preach? You ought to preach the Bible, and that's what Paul's using. Paul's using the Old Testament and all of those prophecies of God in the Old Testament to point to Jesus. He's preaching Jesus to them, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. So that's significant because he's preaching in a Jewish synagogue, and they knew Christ was coming, the Messiah, the anointed one. And all Paul is doing is lifting him up and saying, here's the guy. This is the one that we've been waiting for. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacking the house of Jason. They were seeking to bring them out to the people. So they knew Paul had been staying at Jason's house. Apparently he wasn't there when they come to attack. But verse 6, when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also. What a great testimony. What they're saying is Paul and Silas have turned the world upside down, and guess what? We got them here now. We got to do something about this. I want you to be men and women who are turning the world upside down, regardless of your age. If you're 100 or you're 10, I pray that it would be said about all of us that because of what Jesus has done in our lives, we're turning the world upside down. So back to Thessalonians. He's Paul and Silas to the church at Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So connecting the Father with the Son. And he uses three words to describe Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ. Lord meaning supreme in authority, the creator God, Lord. Jesus, which indicates his humanity, the name from his birth. And Christ, Lord Jesus Christ, Christ indicating deity. It meant the Messiah, the anointed one. And so that's what Paul, that's the name that Paul's writing in. And he says to them, grace and peace. 
He says that in a lot of his letters, grace and peace. Grace meaning God's unearned favor. Grace is receiving something you don't deserve. Peace means to be at rest or to be whole, to no longer be at war. Hear me say this, grace and peace. You can't have peace until the grace of God has been applied to your life. What you didn't deserve, what you didn't earn, who is given as a free gift of God, is what brings about peace. And Paul says, we give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers. Again, wouldn't it be great to get that kind of letter? But you could be that kind of letter for somebody else. To pray for people and text them, email them, write them, call them, leave a message to say, you know what, I'm praying for you constantly. You're always on my mind, and here's what I'm praying for you. So look at the consistent witness of verses 3 through 5. Paul continues, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So Paul says, constantly we're bearing you in mind. And three thoughts came to his mind. When he thought about the Thessalonians, who he's no longer there. He had been there for months. Preached in the synagogue the first three weeks, but he was there a lot longer than a few weeks. He was there for months. He's now in Corinth, and he's with Silas and Timothy. And they're thinking about this church. And he wants to write a letter to them that probably Timothy will take back with him to encourage them. Now, letters back then took, you know, now you hit email, and as soon as you hit it, it goes to wherever you're sending it. Back then, it would have taken weeks, if not months, for this letter to get there. Paul says there's three things I think about. I think first about your work of faith. And maybe your little antenna went up, and you said, wait, wait, wait a minute, work of faith. Faith is not something that you earn by work, and that's true. For we're saved by faith through grace, not a result of works. What Paul's talking about is once you come to faith in Christ, Ephesians 2.10 says we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them. So work is not what brings you to faith. Work is not what earns you God's grace. But once you receive God's grace, once you by faith have trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, there ought to be evidence of it. And that's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying there's evidence by what you're doing that your faith is genuine. Second thing he says is your labor of love. Labor, tough word. It means a cut or a pain. It means to love like God loves, even to the point of weariness. John 13, Jesus says to the upper room discourse, he's got his disciples gathered in the upper room. This is where they will, he'll wash their feet. This is where they'll share the Lord's Supper together. One of the things he said is they will know, who's they? The world will know that you are my followers. How? By your love for one another. So the church at Thessalonians, Paul is saying, I'm, I've noticed, I'm praying for, and I'm bearing in mind the fact you, you ha- are working in faith, but you've got a labor of love. You're loving people like God loves. And the third thing is your steadfastness of hope. Literally, your cheerful endurance. What were they hoping in? They were hoping in the fact that Jesus was returning again. And in fact, every chapter of 1 Thessalonians, five chapters, every one of them mentions the return of Christ. Paul's even going to have to teach them that, yes, Jesus is returning. Even if you were to die before he returns, you're not going to miss out on anything. He's going to teach them later in the book of 1 Thessalonians about that. But Paul says, your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of God the Father, 
knowing brethren, beloved by God, brethren, he's also talking to cisterns, all right, brethren and cisterns, people of God. He uses the term brethren 21 times in these two letters, First and Second Thessalonians. He loved to call them brethren, but he's talking to the church, the called out ones. And he's saying, knowing that you are beloved by God and his choice of you, he has drawn you to himself. Take comfort in that, knowing that God has been active bringing you to himself. Have comfort in that. Have hope in that. Steadfast. Persevere in your hope that you are beloved by God. For our gospel did not come in word only. I love the fact that Paul's saying, different from other messages, the gospel means good news. And any other message that they had heard apart from the gospel was not good news. It was bad news. They lived in a pagan society where they were Roman and Greek deities. They were idols. And now even some of the Jews were upset that they were turning the world upside down, and they're trying to get folks to become Jews rather than complete the, their Jewness to come to faith in Christ. And so Paul says, our gospel didn't come in word only. I love that. There's more than just the words that you speak. When you share your faith with somebody, look what happens. Our gospel did not come in word only, but three things. Also in power, dunamis, where we get the word dynamite, force. Our gospel comes in miraculous power. So when you share the gospel, it's accompanied by the power of God. It's not just your words. You're not just selling something. You're telling people the good news of the message of Jesus Christ. And so when you do that, God ushers in. As you're faithful to share, God brings in the power of God, also in the Holy Spirit. I grew up in a church that didn't talk about the Holy Spirit a lot. We referred to the Holy Spirit as an it and maybe part of that was King James Bible used the word ghost, and that scares people, the Holy Ghost. But here's what happens when the word of Christ goes forward, when the gospel is proclaimed. Even in this moment, as the gospel is being proclaimed in church, it's attended by the power of God and the anointing of the Holy Spirit that brings that power out and brings with it full conviction. Just as you know, the kind of man we prove to be. I don't know if sometimes you think by sharing Christ that you're sharing something like a salesman that's going door to door. That's not the truth. If you're selling, there used to be people called the fuller brush salesman. Anybody ever heard of fuller brushes? It's kind of before my time. We didn't have those. We had milk people, students, you're not going to believe this, but they used to bring milk to your door. Several times a week, they just bring glasses of milk, you know, bottles of milk and potato chips. Anybody ever get potato chips brought door to door? They brought them in a can, Joe, Charles Chips. It was good, but I was, I was happy when we discovered Fritos and Doritos. But they used to bring that. And at times when you share the gospel, you feel like I'm selling something. You're not. It's not just your words. It's the power of Almighty God that is attended by his power and the person and presence of the Holy Spirit that makes it more than just what your words are, brings about full conviction and Paul says, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And then I want you to see their faithful example. Because of what they could see in Paul, they became faithful men and women themselves. So let me read verses 6 and 7. Anybody notice that my shoe came untied? I'm giving you time to find verse 6 and 7. This is a stalling technique. They teach us this in seminary. So talk amongst yourselves. Have you found? All right, everybody found verse 6? 
I kept stepping on my shoestring. I said, in a minute, I'm going to bust it, and y'all are all going to suck the air out of the room. If I do fall, you're welcome to laugh, okay? So verses 6 and 7. You also became imitators of us and the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. So you became imitators from us. We get our word from the Greek word here. We get the word mimic from imitators. In the midst of pagan culture, Paul says you become imitators of us. Paul didn't really have a New Testament to hold up and point to Jesus. He had the Old Testament to point to the promises of God. The thing he had to point to was himself and Silas and Timothy. And he says, listen, you want to get closer to God? Do what we're doing. Because we are going to lead you to the Lord. So you became imitators of Paul, Silas, and Timothy, but also of the Lord. As they heard about the message of the gospel, as they heard about the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, they became more and more like Jesus. I asked this question last week. I'll ask it again because most of you weren't here. If somebody followed you for a week, at the end of that week, would they get closer to Christ or further away? If you're a child of God, you've placed your faith in Jesus, somebody ought to be able to follow you, and in so doing, they're following the Lord because that's who you are following. So Paul says, you became imitators of us, having received the word, look how they received it, in much tribulation with joy of the Holy Spirit. In much tribulation, intense pressure, tribulation. The root word is the word to crowd, and they were crowded. As they came to faith in Christ, there's people in the city of Thessalonians that did not like that. We read about it over in Acts. They literally came to Jason's house to drag Paul, Silas out to, I don't know, do what with them, probably try to kill them. So that's pressure, right? You can go to the doctor sometimes, and he's, you're having dental work done, and he said, you may feel a little pressure. Well, this is bigger than that. The pressure they were under was people who didn't like the fact they trusted Christ, who didn't like the fact they turned away from idols and Greek and Roman gods, and were serving the true God. They didn't like it. You came to faith in much tribulation with joy of the Holy Spirit. How does that work? How can you have intense pressure and tribulation and joy at the same time? Well, it's possible because joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5 tells us the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, peace, patience, and so forth. Joy. So you can experience joy even in the midst of great tribulation. I saw a sign in a bookstore that I like to repeat. It says, joy is not the absence of sorrow. It is the presence of God. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, even though there may be pressure from your family, pressure from your friends, pressure from the world that we live in that isn't real excited, the world doesn't care if you're religious. But when you become a genuine follower of Jesus Christ, it upsets people. And Paul says, you've come in much tribulation, but with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example. Do you see what happened? They were following Paul and Silas and Timothy. They were imitating, mimicking what they saw in them. Well, guess what happens? You do that long enough, you become an example. The word literally means a stamp that leaves an impression. Stitches from a softball. Force that leaves an impression. Paul doesn't call any other church an example. Most of the churches he writes to He's trying to get them to become one, but he's saying to the church at Thessalonica, you're an example of what you've seen in us. And not just 
in town, but in all of Macedonia and Achaia, which meant all of Greece, two main provinces, all of Greece. They were examples to all the believers. And then last, the fourth point, let me read the last three verses. The huge impact is made. Verse 8. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith towards God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. So the word of God is sounding forth from this church. Here's the point. The church ought to be a place where the gospel is resounding outside of. It's not just a matter of saying, hey, come to church. It's to now take the church to the world. Listen, us ministers will try weird stuff to get people to come. If your strategy is y'all come, you'll do things like have a 50-foot banana split. I did that in youth ministry a few years ago. Well, fewer than a few. Some of you weren't alive when I was doing this. Anybody ever done the 50-foot banana split? Joe, you ever done that? So the way you do it is you have a guy bring a gutter out. So the guy comes out and runs a gutter out of the back of this truck 50 feet long. Nobody in the church knew that he delivered it before I was expecting it. So two days later when I flip it over to use it, there's slugs in there. So I rinsed it out and lined it with tinfoil, went to the grocery store and bought all the ice cream, bananas, and toppings you can find, and you just give everybody a spoon. And you just sit there like it's a trough. We had 150 kids show up, which was more than we would normally have on a Wednesday night. 150. One of the youth walked up and said, you're the best youth minister in the world. And I thought, you know, that would mean something if you knew another youth minister. (laughs) But while I was patting myself on the back and thinking, there's 150 kids here. This is great. We're changing the world. God kind of tapped on my shoulder, and here's what I thought. You know what? There's 5,000 kids in this county that aren't at anybody's church, and they're not coming for a banana split. So how are they going to be reached? It's probably not going to be because they came to hear me, a preacher. It's going to be because the church, students, adults, have taken the gospel to them, and God has drawn them to himself. I like a church that I visited, and I've seen this several times since the first time I saw it in Orlando, Florida. But the welcome signs that lead you into the parking lot, the backside of them as you leave church that day says, now enter the mission field. That's the mentality the church at Thessalonians had. That's the mentality we've got to have. It's not just y'all come, but it's y'all go and take the gospel to the nations. And so Paul says the word is sounded forth from you like blowing a trumpet or rolling thunder. It is thundered from your church. Don't raise your hand, but is that happening at your church? Is the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is it thundering in your community? Is it thundering in your state? Is it thundering in the world? Are we reaching the nations for Christ out of the church that's come to faith in Christ? Are we telling other people about Jesus? Because he says, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but every place your faith towards God has gone forth. So Paul's commending the church and basically saying, it's not just Greece, but it's that pivotal place you're at. You're on a seaport town. You are on the Roman road. People come through by boat. People come through by road traveling here, there, and yonder. And they're hearing about the good news of Jesus. Listen, we've been doing international missions for a long, long time. And we still need to do international missions for the rest of the time. But you know what? God's bringing people to your doorstep 
God brings people here now from other places. They need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't have to leave your town sometimes to reach internationals with the message of the gospel. In fact, Paul says, I love this. He says, the message is thundered so much that I don't need to say anything. Paul's saying, you're doing such a good job. I'm not, I don't have to tell, encourage you because you're doing the work of evangelism. You're telling people the good news. And they themselves report to us. When Paul runs into people and says, hey, have you heard about this church at Thessalonica? They said, yeah, you're, you're Paul. We've heard about you. You've led this church to Christ. You've established a church there. And they are taking the gospel to the nations. You've turned to God from idols. I love that word, turned. It means you are walking away from Christ. You've been met with the message of the gospel. You have turned. Now, I want you to understand something. I've heard youth testimonies after youth camp that say this. Man, God got a hold of my life at youth camp, turned my life around 360 degrees. Think about that. That means you are walking away from Christ. He turned your life around 360 degrees. You're still walking away from Christ. So the message is it's 180 degrees. Where's my Gastonia peeps? There used to be a bumper sticker in Gastonia. It was a black bumper sticker with yellow writing that said, if you're on the wrong road, God allows you turns. That's what turning is. It's a U-turn. But I read that bumper sticker and thought, wait a minute. If you're on the wrong road and you make a U-turn, you're still on the wrong road. The bumper sticker should say, if you're heading in the wrong direction, God allows U-turns. If you're on the wrong road, you need to get off that road. But that's the, that's the message that Paul is preaching is, you have repented from worshiping Greek and Roman gods. You've repented from following idols. And now you're serving a living and true God. The word serving literally means you become a willing slave to Jesus Christ. And contrary to the idols that you used to hold on to, you're serving a God who is living. Listen, there's a lot of, a lot of religions in the world. There's only one empty tomb. The Savior that we worship, Jesus Christ, is alive. And he's coming again. So you serve not only a living God, but you serve the true God because all those other gods, and there's hundreds of them, are false. But you serve the living and the true God, and you wait the Son from heaven. We're waiting the return of Christ. What do we do in the meantime? You don't have to flip there, but in Acts chapter 1, Jesus gives them, hey, you're going to be my witnesses in Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world, but wait for the Holy Spirit to come, and you're going to receive power when that happens, you're going to be my witnesses. Then Jesus ascends into heaven, and what do the disciples do? I don't know how long they stood there, but an angel appears to them and says, what are you doing looking up into heaven? The same Jesus who ascended is going to come back. And it's been 2,000 years. We're waiting on that. People have asked me, are we close to the return of Christ? I can answer definitively. We're closer than we've ever been. But I promise you, he doesn't want you standing with your mouth open looking into heaven. He had already told them, here's what you do. Wait until the Holy Spirit comes. That was going to happen about 10 days later at Pentecost. And when that happens, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to take the gospel message that you've heard from me and seen in me, and you're going to take it to the nations. Because he's been raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Let me close with this thought. 
you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have been rescued. You've been delivered. You've literally been dragged out of danger for the wrath that is to come. One of the things Paul's going to teach them later on in this letter is, as a child of God, we're not destined for wrath, but it's coming. And as we tell people about Jesus, we're helping them to find Christ so they can be rescued and dragged out of danger themselves. So three thoughts as I close. Number one, have you turned to God? Have you ever trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior? I'm not asking if you're religious, not asking if you're, if you're a member of a church, but has there ever been a time in your life where you did the 180? You were walking away from God, you're now walking towards God. You've trusted Him as your Lord and Savior. You've acknowledged your need for a Savior. Are you setting an example? Can people follow you? You may have been a Christian a week, you may have been a Christian a year, and some of us have been believers for a long, long time. What kind of example, what kind of footprints are we leaving for somebody else to follow and then, are you looking forward to his return? If Jesus Christ returned today, would you be happy about that or would you be needing more time? Would you be saying, praise God, or would you be saying, oops? I remember them talking in church about the fact Jesus was coming again, just didn't know it was going to be so soon. It may be in our lifetime. So let's pray together. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for the truth of your